Amen. We're in Psalm 72 this morning, Psalm 72, as we conclude our series in Psalms that we've been in for the, uh, really since September. And uh, actually, I was planning to preach this message last week, and uh, thankfully we had Nate who was able to really fill in for me and, and be here. And uh, by the way, thank you to all who've been praying for us with the, the birth of Titus this week. Um, tough transition, you know, with a, with a new child coming into the, into, the, uh, into the family, but really appreciate the prayers, the support, the encouragement from our church family, both baby and mom are, are healthy, and uh, so just thank you to the church family for all the, the support and encouragement, and um, if I say anything crazy today, it's uh, due to the, you know, the lack of sleep. I'm running on, on fumes and um, unhealthy amounts of caffeine, uh, so I'm just asking you to give me a pass for anything that doesn't quite come out the way that I intended it. Let's read Psalm 72. I encourage you to follow along as we read this psalm. It's a psalm that is pointing to Jesus, that is helping us consider and anticipate the arrival of Jesus. It's a psalm for Solomon. So I think we can imagine David penning this psalm, this prayer for his son Solomon as he prepares to take the throne. So so hear the word of the Lord, Psalm 72. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness, and thy poor with judgment. The mountain shall bring peace to the people, and the little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people, he shall save the children of the needy, and shall break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear thee, as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass, and showers that water the earth. In his days shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he shall deliver the needy when he crieth. The poor also, and him that hath no helper. He shall spare the poor and needy, and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall their blood be in his sight. And he shall live, and to him shall be given the gold of Sheba. Prayer also shall be made for him continually, and daily shall he be praised. There shall be an handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountains. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon. And they of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doth wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. The top of the stationery read, Don't let the turkeys get you down. Um, I don't have stationery like that, by the way. Um, Well, the bottom of the letter featured a tongue-in-cheek drawing of a cartoon elephant with turkeys climbing on top of it. And the note read this, Dear George, 
You will have moments when you want to use this particular stationery. Well, go to it, George. George, I treasure the memories we share and wish you all the very best. You'll be in my prayers. God bless you and Barbara. I'll miss our Thursday lunches. Ron. With that note, President Reagan began the tradition of presidents writing a handwritten note for their successors and leaving it on the Resolute Desk in the Oval Office. Uh, kind of a tongue-in-cheek humor that you, if you know anything about Reagan with the, the elephant and the turkeys and, and all of those things going on with it. And that's a tradition that continues to this day. Some of the notes are lighthearted, like President Reagan's note to, to President Bush. Some are more serious and, and lengthy. Psalm 72, in a sense, is like one of those notes that, that a president would leave for his successor. It's a, it's a prayer written by King David for his son, who would be King Solomon, as he took the throne and, and followed in his place. But it's more than just a nice little note saying, hey, the job is great, have a great time while you, while you lead the country. It's more than that. It is, a, it is a prayer for Solomon to rule righteously. It is a job description, if you will, of here's what the king is meant to look like. Here's what the king is meant to do. It, it's a manifesto to say, Solomon, here are the ideals of what a perfect king looks like. This is the standard to which you aspire. The standard is not David, because David himself did not aspire to this. The standard is not, hey, make sure you're not as bad as the kings down there in Egypt or, or over there in Syria. The standards are the standards that, that are laid out in the psalm, a, a lofty standard for the king. It's a fulfillment of the promises God himself had made to David. God had told David, David, you're going to have a son who one day is going to rule forever. And here's David as he, as, as he prepares to hand off the kingdom to his son Solomon saying, Solomon, I'm praying that it might be you. But if you read the Old Testament, it's pretty clear that the ideals and the standards of this psalm were not fulfilled in David. They were not fulfilled in Solomon. In fact, the wishes of this psalm, the longings of the psalm, went completely and utterly unfulfilled through Israel's history. If you read about the kings in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, they were anything but righteous kings. They were anything but kings who ruled forever. They were they they, they, were, they were anything but in kings who would would take into to consideration the plight of the poor and the needy. The expectations laid out in the psalm, the psalm for the kings, were not merely unmet but they were utterly ignored by David, by Solomon, by all the subsequent kings of Israel and Judah. The language of the psalm is almost lavish and over the top to describe any king that ever sat on the throne of Judah. It's too audacious to apply to any known king in Israel's history. It's a psalm that anticipates a better king who would fulfill the ideals of the psalm. It's a psalm that anticipates a perfect king who would not only meet the expectations, but exceed them. It's a psalm that anticipates a kingdom that will be universal and will be eternal and will be righteous. In short, this is a psalm that anticipates the coming of King Jesus, the son of David. It's a psalm that anticipates the arrival of that baby in the manger. The coronation of the king on the cross, the sacrificial lamb sitting on his throne. A psalm that is ultimately about Jesus. So as we gather today on this Christmas Eve, as we think about the, uh, the transition from this year into next year, 
praise God that King Jesus continues to rule and to reign. As we anticipate Christmas and we, we, we think about the coming of Christ to earth, the call here is for you and for me to, to rejoice in the perfect king, to put all our hope in the one who rules and reigns, to anticipate the return of King Jesus to rule over this entire planet and to rule forever and ever. So what is it about Jesus that makes him the perfect king? What is it about Jesus that makes him the object of our longings, that makes him the fit object of all of our praise, that makes him the, the, the one to whom we offer all that we have? Why is it that we can have the Magi coming from the east and saying, where is he that's born king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. What is it that makes Jesus worthy of the worship of the wisest of the wise? What is it that makes Jesus worthy of the praise of the strongest of the strong? What is it that makes him king of kings and lord of lords? Well, let's walk through the psalm and just see a portrait. And my goal here today is not to give you, you know, five steps of how to have a stress-free Christmas and uh, anything along those lines. My goal here is to pull back the curtain for a minute and help us see the majesty and the glory of Jesus. If you leave here today with nothing more than a grander and clearer vision of the majesty of Jesus, I'll count that as a grand success, right? If we can leave here today with a greater, a greater affection for Christ, that is what this passage aims to do. In the first four verses, we see that Jesus is the righteous king. He's the righteous king. Notice how often we see the words judgment and righteousness. When you see judgment, don't think like, oh, someone's really judgmental and they're, they're saying nasty things to me. The idea here is a jobs that the king had in ancient Israel was to be sort of the supreme court of the land. So different cases may come before him and he would have to make a determination, often very difficult cases. His job was to take the law of God and the Torah and apply it evenly and justly to the cases before him. This is a prayer for the king to have wisdom and being able to, to carry out justice, to not show favor to the strong and the rich, but to, to bring, to apply God's law evenly to all. So David prays, give the king thy judgments and thy righteousness to the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness. He'll, he'll make right judgments. He's not going to have his thumb on the scale of justice inappropriately. And thy poor with judgment. Verse 4 says, he'll judge the poor of the people. He'll save the children of the needy. He shall break in pieces the oppressor. The righteous king that is being described here is one, listen, a king can only be righteous if he knows what righteousness is. All the kings of the ancient world basically lived in a situation where might made right. If you had enough power and enough troops and a sharp enough sword and enough brutality, you could be king. And anyone who disagreed with you, you would chop off their heads. That's how they ruled. That's how they reigned. The kings of Israel were to be different. They weren't to be arbitrary dictators, but they were to apply the law of God. They were to be under the law. That's what Deuteronomy teaches. The king was, in fact, to write out his own copy of the Torah when he took the throne and do all that he could to live according to it. This was the key job of the king, was to do justice and to do righteousness. But the problem that Israel's kings had is, listen, none of them were just. None, none of them were righteous. You've got even David, who is sort of the, the epitome of perhaps the best king that Israel ever had. And here's a man who at times abused his power, who used his power to take another man's wife, who used his power to try to cover it up, had a man murdered. You have Solomon, who 
during his reign, multiplied wives and had a big harem, just like all the other kings uh, around him. Here was a guy who turned his heart away from God after idols, and the list goes on and on. You finish the Old Testament, and it's kind of discouraging, especially when you look at the kings. You're like, man, these sons of David are a disaster. You finish the Old Testament, and you come with a keen sense of, we need a better king, because these kings have pretty much run the, the nation off a cliff and into the ravine below. The, king, the, the, the kingdom has been blown to smithereens. No, we need a king who is himself righteous and perfect, one who doesn't just occasionally do what is just, but always does what is just, always does what is righteous, one who avoids partiality, one who is immune to bribery, one who is not concerned with self-promotion. I think all of us can understand the, uh, the reality of injustice in our world. I think all of us have, a, have a, an antenna, antenna up when we see and when we experience, we're on the receiving end of injustice. And can understand the longing, man, if only we could have a king and a ruler over this world who would do what is just and right. But what about the unrighteousness in our own hearts? What about the injustice that we perpetrate against other people? We tend to be blind to that, but see front and center the injustice and unrighteousness that's done to us. What about the vice and selfishness that reign in our own lives? What are the prejudice and the hatred and the deception that mark our days? We get Jesus who comes along, who's the opposite of all that. We have Jesus who comes along, who is perfect and righteous. One who never sinned, who never even had a sinful thought, who never had a sinful motive, who never spoke a sinful word, in whose mouth there was no guile, was perfect and sinless in every way, such a degree, a purity and a holiness that we cannot even comprehend. He's this righteous king. But look what the righteous king does. In verses 2 and 4, one of the things that, that David notes here is the righteous king will ensure that justice is done for those who have no voice. Kings in the Old Testament were not only military leaders, they were the judges. They had to apply God's law. They had to have integrity as they carried it out. In, in a world where typically if you were rich, you got justice, but if you were poor, you didn't, the righteous king is one who makes sure that all get justice. In fact, there were protected classes in the Old Testament that, who, who were most vulnerable to being taken advantage of. Widows. In a male-dominated society, a, a woman who does not have a protector says, hey, the king and the law of God specifically says widows must be protected and cared for. Orphans who do not have a father protect them, who would easily be taken advantage of and steamrolled. And immigrants, the foreigners, the strangers, who would maybe be on the outs because they're not part of the culture, they're not part of the, the, the goings-on. So those are the individuals, the, the, the fatherless, the widow, the stranger. The king has to protect those. But notice the text here. It says, he shall judge thy poor with righteousness, or thy people with righteousness, thy poor with judgment. There's something else going on here. In the Bible, poor can have a couple of senses. One of them is sort of, okay, economically impoverished. But the other idea is, are those who are completely and utterly dependent upon God. So Jesus, in his earthly ministry, he comes and says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Ultimately, the poverty that's being described here is not how much money you have in the bank, but how dependent you are on God. 
The reality, beloved, is that every one of us are beggars, and that's all we are. None of us have any righteousness of our own. We can't come along, I'm better than these people over here, and I'm more holy than them over there. We are sinners who have no resources to commend us to God. Jesus' whole ministry in Luke chapter 4 is to proclaim the gospel to those who need it most. In Luke 4, verse 18, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he's not talking just economically there. It's not as if you have less, you're sort of closer to God. He's talking spiritually. Those who come to Christ saying, nothing in my hand I bring. Those who come to him saying, I cannot save myself, I'm a sinner, will you save me? Those are the ones who are declared righteous in his sight. The perfect king comes to those to save those who are poor in spirit to those who see their plight of being lost and run readily to him in faith. He delivers them. As as our text says, he'll judge the poor of the people, he will save the children of the needy, and he shall crush the oppressor. Jesus came into this world and he crushed the oppressor. He crushed the ultimate oppressor, sin and death, and liberates us from the slavery to sin. This ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus not about just economics, but about salvation. The result of it is verse 3, the mountains will bring peace to the people, the little hills by righteousness. The psalm is focused on the king. There's a sudden focus on the land. The idea here is this. When the perfect king rules, when the righteous king reigns, there's prosperity and blessing on the land. That's the picture there in verse 3. When the land is ruled in justice, it enjoys the blessing of God. This is anticipating, of course, the day when Jesus rules and reigns over everything. When there's no more sin, when there's no more death, when it's all done away with. Already he has declared peace on earth. Whenever the gospel is preached, it is a declaration of peace saying, God and sinners who are at war with each other because of sin can be reconciled together at the foot of the cross. Sinners and sinners who naturally hate each other because of various reasons can be brought together in the church of Jesus Christ through the blood of his cross. Talking about the righteous king, the perfect king. When we look around the world in which we live, and you don't have to look very far to find scandal, to find abuse of power, to find leaders and parents and politicians and pastors and priests and CEOs, people in positions of leadership who are misusing their power, It's easy to throw our hands up and be like, it's all a waste. But I think when we see that, it should remind us that even when there is no perfect parent, where there is no perfect pastor, where there is no perfect politician, it is a reminder to say, look to the one who is the perfect king. Look to the one who is a perfect father in heaven. Look to the one who will never leave us or forsake us. The one who uses his authority for our eternal good. He is the righteous king. But there's a second feature of King Jesus that is, that is highlighted in this passage. Not only is he the righteous king, we now see in verse 5 that he is the life-giving king. The life-giving king. Look at the effect of his reign in verse 5. They shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon endure. 
Now, there's some translations that say he will endure as long as the sun and moon. Uh, but the, the Hebrew text very clearly says, they shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon endure. In other words, when King Jesus reigns, he saves sinners and brings them into a worshiping relationship with God Almighty. We who are sinners become worshipers. We'll fear God, we'll worship God, we'll reverence God as long as the sun and moon endure. Now, that's not to say that, okay, when the sun completely burns up and goes from hydrogen to helium and, and all of that, that no longer will it. This is an idiom to say he'll reign forever, okay? He's going to reign forever. There'll be no end to his kingdom. The purpose of his life is to bring us into a relationship with God where we reverence and worship God forever. Now look at verse 7. In his days shall the righteous flourish in abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. And again in verse 17. His name shall endure forever. The point here is the life-giving king is the king who has life in himself. Is the king who has no beginning and no end. The one who is eternal. He will reign forever and ever. Praise God for that. Verses 6 and 7 describe how he gives life. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass and showers that water the earth. Now this language echoes what David wrote in 2 Samuel 23, verses 3 and 4. It, he said this, the last words of David, he says, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. In other words, he says, a good king is not like the sun that scorches the grass, but rather like the rain that comes down that causes the grass to flourish. Uh, back in August, we had that, you know, the, remember all those weeks that it was like 120 day after day after day after day, and we got no rain for week after week. We went away on vacation, and I came back, and the grass in my front yard was like almost black from being scorched by the sun. Uh, you get a good rainstorm, and it turns just that green that we know and love here in, in Alabama. Those in authority can either be like the scorching sun that takes and sucks life away from those they rule over, or they can be like the life-giving rain that comes down that makes the grass to grow and the grass to flourish. This gives us a beautiful definition of what good authority looks like. Good authority is about giving life and causing the people that you lead to flourish. And this is precisely what King Jesus does. He does not come to take, but he comes to give. He says, I've come that they might have life, and what? Life more abundantly. The way that he gives life is by laying his life down for us. He gives life by losing his own. He gives life by going to the cross and dying in our place, and then rising again from the dead so that all who believe in him can have eternal life in him. It causes us to flourish. Now make no mistake, the authority of Jesus is a real authority. He will one day rule and reign with a rod of iron. He speaks with authority. What he commands we must do. He is a king whose law cannot be broken. He is a king whose wrath will be poured out on those who reject him. But for those who receive him, his authority is life-giving. It's there to make us flourish. Sometimes we get the, the, the wrong idea when we read the Bible. We read the commands in the, in the, in the Bible. We're like, all right, kids. The Bible says, thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do that. And even though it would be way more fun to do your own thing, you better do what the Bible says, and it's going to make you miserable, but at least 
God won't whack you. No, 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 we've got it all wrong. When we obey God's word, God's word and God's law and God's authority are there to cause us to flourish. Right? They're not, it's not there to, to, to take away our joy and to, to, to take away what it means to be truly human. Rather, it is there to make us flourish because we're made in his image. So important we come to all these debates today about, you know, about gender and about marriage. And sometimes we give the idea, well, you know, we just got to, you know, God's set it up this way. And it works way better when you do it God's way. Right? The way of transgressors is hard. When you reject God's law, when you reject God's authority, it does not make life better, it makes life worse. His authority is a life-giving authority, and his commandments are not grievous. He says, my, my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think sometimes we read the Bible as a legalistic rule book that's there to just kill our joy and take away all our happiness. When it's the opposite. When there is no, there's, there, there is no place of greater joy and flourishing than when we have submitted ourselves to the authority of King Jesus. We will all answer to some authority, right? We will all be some master's slave. Sin is a cruel and horrible taskmaster, but Jesus is a life-giving master. This notion that you can go do whatever you want is a lie. I'm going to go do whatever I want, and you end up enslaved to your worst impulses. That is not freedom. That is the worst kind of slavery. Either you will be the slave of sin or the servant of righteousness. So which will it be? Jesus' authority is life-giving. Life-giving because he goes to the cross for us. Life-giving because his commandments are good and righteous. His authority in our lives when we place ourselves under it is like the life-giving rain. It's like the dew in the morning that is, that is, that is cool. It's like the, the sun that shines that doesn't scorch the grass but causes photosynthesis to happen and the grass to grow. Life-giving authority. Now, just draw your attention to these, these, this phrase that came up here a few times, as long as the moon, as long as the sun endures. You might say, this is all good and well. You, know, you look in Israel's history, occasionally they'd get a good king like Hezekiah. But you know the problem with a good king like Hezekiah? He died. And the guy who came after him was not a good king. Here's the good news, beloved. King Jesus will never die. Uh, of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. We never have to fear the day that he will no longer rule. We never have to fear the day that his authority is passed to a successor who's no good. He needs no successor. He has no successor. He will rule and reign forever and ever. So put our hope in that. We're coming into an election year, which I'm facing with fear and trepidation, because all we need is more conflict and be at each other's throats. Just a reminder that we'll probably all need is it doesn't really matter who's in the White House. It does not matter who sits behind the resolute desk. What matters is who sits on the throne of heaven, and it is King Jesus. And he will rule and reign no matter what happens here on this earth. All right, number three. The third characteristic of the person he's not only righteous, he's not only life-giving, he's the universal king. The universal king. Look at verse 8. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him. His enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Notice his territory is universal. Verse 8 mentions he is going to, uh, 
have dominion from the sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. Um, this is talking, of course, about the geography of Palestine, from the Mediterranean Sea to the Dead Sea, uh, from the river, which would be the, uh, the Euphrates River, to the ends of the earth. Uh, and in small part, this was sort of fulfilled in the days of Solomon, where for a brief moment, Israel occupied the territory that God had promised them, where they ruled all the way up to the Euphrates River, all the way to the border of Egypt. They had peace and prosperity, and then it all fell apart. This was initially and partially fulfilled in Solomon's life, but one part of this it wasn't. Solomon never reigned, verse 8 says, to the ends of the earth. David never reigned to the ends of the earth. That phrase should sort of, sort of uh, loosen something in your mind. Acts 1.8, you'll be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and what? Unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Same phrase, same idea. This is looking beyond the days of any king that Judah ever had. This is looking beyond the nation state of Israel as it sort of exists right now, as sort of a, a gathering of unregenerate people on a small piece of land in, in Palestine. This is looking to the reign of Jesus. As he rules and reigns over everything, they, listen, the land promise that God made to Abraham, it's not just about this little piece of land in the Middle East. It is ultimately fulfilled when Jesus reigns over not just Israel and Palestine, but over the entire planet, right? Jesus shall reign where'er the sun shall shine. There's a statement in Habakkuk that the knowledge of God shall cover the earth as waters cover the sea. That's what we're looking forward to, the millennial reign of King Jesus over every square inch of the universe. As we take the gospel to our neighbors and as we take the gospel to the nations, we're witnessing a partial fulfillment now as individual sinners bow the knee to King Jesus the world over. We're seeing sort of an installation, if you will, of the final promise when one day all nations will serve him. That's why we are eager to partner with missionaries. Right? That's why we're eager to say, let's help the Dan family as they're going to Hungary. That's why we're saying, let's help the whites so they can get over and help gospel work in Botswana. That's why we're having a missions conference in February, because we believe that Jesus will reign over all the earth. And we believe that Jesus died for sinners the world over. And we believe that we have been commissioned to take the gospel, not only to our neighbors, but to the nations. So we see his territory something far bigger than anything that happened in Solomon's day, something that's going to be fulfilled ultimately when Jesus returns and rules and reigns. But no, notice verses 9, 10, and 11 describe the universality of his rule over his subjects. We get the people who dwell in the wilderness. You think about the, the Bedouins who they, they, they don't have anyone telling them what to do. They're going to come and bow before him. His enemies are going to lick the dust. The idea there is they are just on their face before him, begging for mercy. The kings of Tarshish, so Tarshish probably was somewhere over in Spain. It was sort of the far reaches of the known Mediterranean world. So like, as far as you can go to the west, those guys will one day acknowledge his rule. And the isles, anything that's sort of beyond Spain, out over the Atlantic Ocean, those guys as well will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. That's sort of to the south. And of course, in uh, Solomon's reign, the queen of Sheba came with gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Again, this hasn't happened. We're looking for it to happen one day. 
The most distant regions David could have imagined, Tarshish to the west, Sheba and Seba to the south, saying one day they will acknowledge the rule of the perfect king. Could you imagine a, uh, a meeting of the UN General Assembly? Those things are always a, you know, a complete, utter circus. But imagine one of those things, all of the prime ministers and presidents and kings and everybody are there. And instead of you know, attacking one another and passing silly resolutions that don't do anything, they all get down on their knees and say, we acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ as the king over everything, and we bow before him in sincerity, and we acknowledge him as our Savior and our Lord, and he rules over everything. It's sort of impossible to imagine that, right? To imagine like the, uh, the, the theocratic rulers of Iran acknowledging King Jesus, or Kim Jong-un acknowledging Jesus as Lord. Like, we just can't, can't fathom that. But one day, one day Jesus will reign over everything. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Now, some will bow when it is everlastingly too late after the divine sentence has been read. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. You will acknowledge him as Lord then, but it will be everlastingly too late. Eternally better, infinitely better to acknowledge him as Lord now. Acknowledge him as king now. We read earlier from, from Matthew 2 of the, the Magi, the wise men coming from the east, bringing their gifts. I think we can see a little foreshadowing of this, of people coming from different parts of the world with these kingly treasures that they're offering to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They're, they're, they're not actually kings. There probably weren't just three of them. But bringing these kingly gifts to the king of the Jews, King Jesus. He's a universal king. In other words, there's not going to be any enemy that in the end will stand against him. He's already defeated the biggest enemy, right? Sin, death, Satan. He, he has completely cleaned their clock. He has completely wiped the floor with them. He has completely sent them packing from the field of battle. And one day he's going to return to do the final mop-up operation. Oh, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. If Jesus is the king like that, does it not follow that he deserves the greatest praise and service we could offer to him? Not just sort of like, okay, you know, I'm going to give Jesus the leftovers. You wouldn't do that for a king. You wouldn't do that for a president. You wouldn't do that for a governor. In fact, that's sort of the, the argument in, in Malachi, right? Where they're sort of, they're, they're coming to bring their sacrifices to God, and they're like, I'm going to bring the sheep that has that horrible, like, Oozing sore, I'll offer that as a sacrifice. Or the one that's blind or the one that can't really walk, I don't want that sheep, I'll give that one to God. And God says, what are you doing? I am a great king. You wouldn't dare offer that to the governor. Bring your best. Give of your best to the master. We're coming into a new year. It's a great time to sort of reevaluate, to be like, okay, where, where are my priorities? Listen, there's a whole lot more to the Christian life than being like, I'm going to attend church. Like attending church with your heart far from God is just sort of a, religious exercise. But having a faithful walk with Jesus is not less than faithfully going to church. It's not less than faithfully reading your Bible. What if we said that, hey, in the new year, if Jesus is king, I'm going to make worshiping him and gathering with his people and reading his word, those are going to be the givens in the schedule. Those are going to be the things that are the non-negotiables because he's the king and deserves nothing less. Every area of our lives. But why is it that he is going to have this universal kingdom? 
Why is it that he's going to be one day celebrated and worshipped by all kings? Well, we get the reason now coming into verse 12. And this is surprising. Look at that first word of verse 12. For reason. Here's the, here's the reason why this is going to be the case. He will deliver the needy when he crieth. The reason why really verses 1 through 11 are true is because this perfect king is the Savior. Don't miss that logical connection. Like, yes, this king's going to be glorious, and he's going to be righteous, and he's going to be he's going to be praised. Why? For he will deliver the needy when he crieth. He is a king who saves. The reasons for his global rule is not his military might. It's not his diplomatic wisdom. It's not his ability to forge good alliances. Surprisingly and shockingly, his mercy. It's his compassion. It's his grace. It's not the deals that he cuts with the mighty, but it's his defense of the weak that demonstrates his glory and cements his rule. So David is wishing for this future kingdom in verses 1 through 11. Verses 12 to 14 tell us what must must happen for those wishes to be true. There must be a king who comes who saves those who cry out to him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The deliverance that's in view here is not just, hey, would you deliver me from the oppressive people in my life? It is a cry for deliverance from the tyranny of sin. He will deliver the needy when he cries. Not maybe, but he will. If you cry out to him in repentance and faith, if those people in your life that you are, you're praying for, and you're like, I, I want to see them come to faith in Jesus, if they will call to him in repentance and faith, he will hear, he will deliver. Now, here's the thing that's being described in verses 12, 13, and 14. According to uh, scholars of the Psalms, these acts of delivering the needy, helping the helpless, showing pity on the needy, saving the lives of the needy, are actions that everywhere else in the rest of Psalms are only done by God. All right, these are actions that are only done by Jehovah God himself. Here's what he's saying is the king must do God-like things. The king must do things that only God himself does, saving the needy. That's really stunning. The one who does these things can't just be a son of David. The one who does these things must be divine. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, coming into this world as a baby to be the Savior that's described here, to do what only God can do, and that is save the likes of you and me. Before he reigns, he must redeem. That's the sequence here. Verses 12, 13, and 14 happen before all the stuff about the glory. The global kingdom comes as a result of his compassionate reign. Condescension precedes exaltation. Passion precedes praise. Suffering comes before glory. The cross comes before the crown. That's exactly what we see in the Gospels. Jesus fulfills this to a T. Coming and suffering and dying and saving and redeeming and then being exalted to the Father's right hand from whence he will come to rule and reign. So we've got a king here who does what only God does, a king who stoops to rescue before he rises to rule. I think it is impossible to look at this and not see Jesus. He is the one who rescues. 
He is the one who goes down so he could go back up. He is the one who descended to, a, to the manger, then to the cross, then to the tomb, so he could be exalted far above all heavens, far above death and sin and degradation. The basis of Jesus' kingdom is his redemption, is his cross work. The enthronement, you say, when is Jesus enthroned? In one sense, the Gospels portray him being enthroned as he hangs on the cross. Just a, a strange irony that the one who is hung on the cross is the king of the Jews. He's a servant who rules. It's only because he died and rose again that he will return and one day reign. So that's how he saves, is by coming down to us and rescuing us. But notice who he saves. Verse 13, he shall spare the poor and needy and save the souls of the needy. Those who think they need no Savior will have no Savior. It is only those who see their lostness and their sin. It's like, hey, we got it, Pastor. Like, we're here, we're Christians, we believe in Jesus, we know we're sinners. But I think we forget it sometimes. See, here's what happens. We begin to think, we look around at other people and we think, well, at least I don't do what they do over there. And we begin to look down our self-righteous noses at other people and we forget that I am only a sinner saved by grace. We look at our spouses when they do things that we don't like and we self-righteously judge them and lash out and, and get upset at them. At that moment, we're, we're sort of suffering from amnesia. We're forgetting, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. You see, the recognition that I am needy and that he saves the needy should make me humble. It should make me humble towards those who wrong me. It should make me ready to forgive. It should make me ready to extend the same grace that has been extended to me. Those he saves are those who come as beggars, those who enter through the wicked gate. This kingdom of his is an upside-down kingdom where the way up is down, where the least is the greatest and the first is last and the last is first. So you want to be part of this kingdom of Jesus. It's a beautiful, perfect, glorious kingdom. First, you have to become nothing. You've got to come as a beggar. You must come as a sinner clinging to no merit of your own. You come humble and needy and dependent, and you simply call out to the good king, and he will deliver. Solomon didn't do that. He became oppressive in his reign. He taxed the people to death. He employed slave labor for his building projects. He lived lavishly. But King Jesus, he healed lepers. He raised the dead. He ate with publicans and sinners. He rescued the outcasts. Whereas King Solomon had multiplied a heavy yoke. Jesus came with a light yoke. So why does he save? Why? Look at verse 14. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall their blood be in his sight. Why does he save? He saves because he loves. In the ancient world, oppression and violence, that was the norm, particularly against the weak. Frankly, most kings and kingdoms care little for the lives and the well-being of the poor and needy. The bigger your government, the bigger your bureaucracy, the less important, the less, the less visible is the individual. But in the kingdom of King Jesus, precious is the blood of even the poor and the needy, even the weakest. He saves us because he loves us. He saves us because we cannot save ourselves. He saves us to establish his kingdom. He saves us so he and not us would be the one who is celebrated. It's natural in our world for everything to be about the survival of the fittest and the sacrifice of the weakest. 
But the perfect king reverses that. We see the one who is the strongest laying his life down for us who are the weakest. The one who pays the debt of those who have wronged him. The one who comes as the redeemer. You see, that's not only our, our path for salvation. That's the model for how we, we, we are to live. It completely changes everything. But finally, we see him as the blessed king. A king who were to rule like this. Have you ever had a, a, a president who was Jesus? He would be beloved and blessed and honored by those who had been brought into his kingdom by his grace. And that's precisely what we see here. He shall live and shall be given him the gold of Sheba. Prayers also shall be made for him continually, and daily shall he be praised. That is the, the Hebrew word blessed. Every day he will be blessed. There will be handfuls of corn in the earth upon the tops of the mountains. There's prosperity. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon. So it's like the, the, the sheaves of grain swaying in the breeze. Just prosperity. And they of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. Just flourishing harmony, prosperity. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him, and all nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God. So we get this word blessed repeated several times. He will come with blessings for his people. He inspires the prayer and the praise of his people. He's a long-lived king, ruling over a prosperous kingdom, with a praying, happy people beneath him. But there's also blessings for the nations. All nations shall call him blessed. This is a fulfillment of what God had told Abraham centuries before. In you shall all families of the earth be blessed. Listen, King Jesus is not just for us. It's not just for Americans. He is for all people. And the, the kingdom of God will one day be filled with representatives from every nation and every ethnic group and every tribe and every language group. Heaven's going to be a crazy, diverse kind of place. What, what John declares is every nation, tribe, and tongue, they're worshiping before him. That's what we're longing for. Blessing for the nations. All families will be blessed in him. That was the purpose, the mission of Israel they never fulfilled, but it gets fulfilled through Jesus, the perfect Israelite. Through him, what's lost at Babel when the nations go their separate ways is restored. What was lost at Eden when paradise was lost is restored in Jesus. And it results in verse 18 is this overflowing, cascading blessing to God. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who does wondrous or miraculous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. So we get just sort of blessing echoing off everything, redounding back to God. It's kind of like what Paul says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. So God showers us with blessing. And we respond by blessing and praising God in return. And it's just this beautiful cycle of praise and joy that goes on forever and ever. God blesses us so we would, in a sense, bless or praise him. This is what we're praying for whenever you pray, thy kingdom come. We're praying for this day when Jesus returns and rules like this. The day when all the earth will know and worship and and love him. The good news we've come to say today is that the king 
has in common. The baby born in the manger, it's not just a cute story of shepherds and wise men and sheep and stables. It is the fulfillment of God's promise that the king would one day come. And the king who rules not by conquering with the sword, but the king who rules by transforming hearts, the king who rules by changing lives. Any life can be transformed if people will simply bow to him. Sometimes this can feel like a bit of a tension, right? Because we're like, okay, yes, peace on earth, and the king's ruling, and he's coming back one day. The hymn that we're going to conclude with, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, expresses the, the, the longing of that tension of peace on earth, goodwill to men, but I, I read the newspaper, and that doesn't seem to be the case. Christmas 1863 was perhaps the bleakest Christmas in U.S. history. The year had been undoubtedly... The, the most violent year in our, in our nation's history. You had had the, the bloodbaths of Chancellorsville, Vicksburg, Gettysburg, Chattanooga, left tens of thousands of dead, and there was no end in sight. The Emancipation Proclamation had been issued, but millions were still enslaved. And that Christmas Day, a poet by the name of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and you might remember, like, I vaguely remember that from my literature class, he sat down and poured out his grief onto paper. Here was a guy who personally, two years before his wife had died when she was burned to death in a horrible accident. His son, just weeks before, he had gotten the report that his son had been horribly wounded in one of the battles of the Civil War. And as he sat in Cambridge, Massachusetts on that Christmas, he heard the bells ringing for the Christmas Day services and the, the phrase, peace on earth, goodwill to men. He thought, this seems like such a, a cruel joke. With all the violence, all of the despair, all the heartache, peace on earth, goodwill to men. As he looked around him, he saw only the devastation of war. He saw only the agony of loss, only the brokenness brought about by sin. How do we square that reality? Peace on earth, goodwill to men, the, the perfect king ruling and reigning with the sin and the brokenness of, our, of this world. So he wrote these words, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and mild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And I thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. A few verses later, and in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. To men. How do we square this, square this promise of peace with the realities of suffering and loss and death in a fallen world? It's only squared when we look at the cross, when the baby in the manger bore all the suffering and all the wrath that sin deserves, and he will one day deal with it all when he returns. You see, we can't talk about the first coming without anticipating the second coming. And one day he will return and there will be peace on earth. There will be goodwill 